Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Romans chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 here in just a bit. Uh, One word to you before we read and get going. Uh, We will worship by uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper next week together. Uh, So encourage the confession of sin, self-examination this week. Let's look to the text, Romans chapter 13, new chapter, new section. I am excited, but I approach it with great fear and trembling. Romans 13, let's read verses 1 through 7 together. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing." For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we ask that you will glorify your name. We come to your word again. You have revealed your truths. You have revealed who you are. You have revealed how you have made this world. You have revealed your will for us and and even what your intentions are as you are forming and developing this world and this history and bringing it to its consummation. And so God, we ask, give us help, give us eyes to see. We are unable to do these things on our own. We need your spirit. So, oh Lord, we we ask, give us grace, shine light on your word. Lord, as we study today and in the weeks to come, this section, I, I pray for the miracles that you'll give me help to be able to teach and explain and Hold me back from going places that would be wrong or in error. Uh, Set a guard over my lips, but, but lead me to what is true. And God, all of us who are receiving your word, I pray for the miracle of receiving it by faith and of heeding it and being transformed by it. Please, oh God, we pray, glorify your name. Lord, your word is true in every, every jot, every tittle, every dot of the I, every cross of the T. We are unholy, unworthy, and ought not even be allowed to even look at your word. But you've been merciful, and you have given it to us. So we ask, O God, lead us to your truth. 
Give us help. We pray for our little ones in the next rooms as they are studying your word as well. Please give them grace. Have mercy. Glorify your name. And we pray these things through Christ. Amen. You sometimes hear people refer to the liberal arts when they're talking about education. Uh, certain degrees are a liberal arts degree. You can study on your own some of the liberal arts. And what that's referring to are certain disciplines within education. There's a few categories of them. There's uh, the humanities, uh, which refers to uh, things like uh, history uh, and, and such. There's the arts. Uh, there is the political sciences. And some of these matters... I'm a proponent of Christians studying the liberal arts uh, on your own at least, um, and I know that's not very in vogue today. Uh, and and the, my response would be though to objections is just because moronic things are happening at the university level doesn't mean that the studying these things on our own isn't good for us. But there's a, there's a basic principle behind um, the why of the study of the liberal arts. And it is essentially the principle that aligns with the Bible, and that is, you got to understand the world in which you live. The study of the liberal arts is, the intention is to give us an understanding of uh, humans, human behavior, this world, what has happened in history, what, 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 have been the, what has been the flow of cultures and the, the development of this world, the thoughts we think today. This has come from somewhere and it's come from history. And let me hone in on history because it is where I'm going in this introduction. The Bible teaches us biblical history and draws principles out of it and teaches us how to look at the world and how to look at even the history that's not recorded in the Bible, okay, through some lenses of interpretation, because the Bible's history shows us the perspective of heaven. Here's how we are to look at these things. And you find that as you study history, using these biblical principles, you come to understand the world more. You are a part of a big story. You are a part of a world that God made. And we need to know how we fit into this story. We need to know what our place is in this world. You're a part of a world that God has developed and formed over time. And we, we need to know how we got here. Since the day that Jesus said the words uh, that the leaven of the kingdom would permeate the whole lump. That his gospel and his kingdom would touch every part of this globe Jesus has been bringing about an incredible story, and that story has been written for all of us to see and to see his handiwork in it and to understand his purposes of what he is bringing about. We need to know that story. We need to know where we fit in it. And here's where I'm going with why I say all of this. There is a long and complex history regarding the relationship between the church and the state. It has been like Jacob and Esau wrestling in the womb. A tug of war that has been going on through the centuries. 
Uh, because of language used in this very text of Scripture that we're looking at, that, gov that government is a minister of God intended for good, uh, some of the theologians from history that, that you and I respect and admire, they have used the language that there are these two servants of God intended for good in this world, the church and the state. To one of these ministers... God intended it to be a blessing to people primarily here. But to the other minister, he intended them to be a blessing to bring people into the next. To one of those kingdoms, God gave the sword. And to the other, he gave keys. The keys of the kingdom. And how is it that the church and the state are to relate to one another? How do these two servants labor uh, in history, in this world? This has been a long and tumultuous wrestling match through the centuries. And for Christians, the heart of this discussion in terms of understanding it is Romans 13. We need to know that this is by no means uh, not all that the Bible has to say on the subject, but the heart of it, the heart of the understanding is right here in this passage. Romans 13 has become one of the most hotly debated texts of Scripture in the church in the last three years. Everybody forgot about Calvinism and Arminianism and has gone to Romans 13. This has been hotly debated. Much of it fueled by the pandemic, government lockdowns, talk of vaccine mandates, and places where the church was ordered by the state not to do what it was created and commanded by God to do. The church in America found itself asking questions that it had not considered for centuries. The church found that it was ill-equipped, ill-equipped to handle the situation of our day, and I count myself among them. To quote a line from Lord of the Rings, many things that should have never been forgotten were. The whole debacle that the church found itself in and found it was ill-equipped to handle caused myself and other pastors that I know and leaders and believers to go digging for answers. And, and what I found left me amazed at God's majesty, his genius, his wisdom, his sovereignty. But it also left me with shame because what I found is that God had provided the answers, the basic principles. God had provided they were in the word the whole time, but I had missed them. We had missed them. They had not been utilized. The, the basic principles that answer our questions, it was in the Bible the whole time and, and this is a very important and that follows it up, and God had showed the practical outworking of these principles in his church in history. It was there, and I didn't know it was there. The early church fathers, they addressed these things. I didn't know that. The, Augustine, he addressed these things. I didn't know that. The reformers, they addressed it, and the reformers lived it. They lived these things, and many of them died. 
living out the ramifications of these passages, the covenanters that I told you about who had such horrific torture done to their bodies like the uh, limbs being cut off and, and disemboweled and beheaded and, and on and on, burned and drowned and all of these things. All of their torture could have been averted by stating one sentence. One sentence would have undone all of the torture if they would have confessed with their lips, the king is head of the church. Many of these believers went before us in history, lived out the principles of the word of God and taught history. They shed blood to pass truth down to history. It is up to us to hear their words. It is up to us to see how God has worked in history, the scriptures most importantly, but God often shows his scriptures in real life in the story of history. This very discussion is as old as the book of Acts. It's in the pages of the word. Woe to us if we do not heed their counsel. So here is a question that we need to ask as we think on these matters. What is the role of the state? You know, is it even legitimate? Does it have authority? If so, what kind of authority does it have? How much authority does it have? If Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, then how does the Christian relate to Caesar. This is what the Holy Spirit of God, using Paul as his earthly vessel, but the Holy Spirit of God speaks to his people down through the centuries in the pages of Romans 13. This little section here, just seven verses, it might seem brief, it might seem inconclusive. There's actually more here than what immediately meets the eye. And so this is what we're going to spend our time looking at for these next several weeks. Let me go ahead and give you the outline of this text so that from the beginning you see some of the truths in context with them. If you've got your bulletins, I put your outline in there for you. But let me walk you through it here. I see nine major truths um, in this section. Nine major truths that uh, this passage will bring out. And here they are. Number one, every person is to be in subjection to lawful authorities. Number two, all authority is ultimately from God. Number three, to resist lawful authority is to resist God's ordinance. Number four, opposing lawful authority results in punishment. Number five, rulers are to promote what is good but put fear into those who do evil. Number six, civil authorities are a minister of God. Number seven, civil authority has the right from God to bear the sword. Number eight, civil authority has the right from God to tax. And number nine, we are commanded, render to all what is due them. I, I think as we walk through this passage, we'll find uh, every single one of us in our ways of thinking challenged. If you're kind of wired up to think of uh, all government is moronic. <laughs> You'll find the scripture challenge you. 
On the other hand, if you're wired up that you uh, always trust the government and kind of assume that the government basically has the right to do everything that they want to do, you'll find scripture challenge you. I found myself challenged from every direction in the study of these things. And I have tendencies that I must overcome in my temptations as well. But here's my appeal to you from the beginning. Let's commit to be biblical. No matter how it challenges all of our previously conceived notions. Let's commit to be biblical no matter how much it challenges maybe even our own identity if you find yourself immersed in certain political ideas. Let's commit to be biblical no matter how difficult it is. So with that introduction, let's begin looking at the specific language of God's word to us. Uh, today, we're only going to cover this first point. Um, this first point, every person is to be in subjection to lawful authorities. I've got four sub points, and so here's, here's what we're going to look at. Letter A, we're going to look at the state's origin. Letter B, we're going to talk about submission. Letter C, we'll talk about submission to lawful authorities. And then letter D, how far does this submission Go. So this is what we're going to intend to cover. Let's get started with point one and letter A. Every person is to be in subjection to lawful authorities. Let me look at, point you back to the text again. Uh, read verse one with me. Look at the first part there. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Jump down to verse five to see some more of this instruction. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. God made a world with glory. God is glorious. And so if he does something, it's done with glory. If God were to paint a canvas, it would be done gloriously. But God didn't just paint a two-dimensional painting. He created the cosmos that we are a part of. He created the physical universe and he created the heavenly realm and all of it was gloriously done. All of God's creation shows his handiwork in some kind of way. God's glory is seen in, in, in a, a thousand different ways and dimensions. His glory is seen in the diversity of animals that he designed. His glory is seen in the beauty that he made. His wisdom is seen in the complexity of organs and systems within the body, etc., etc. God's glory is seen all over creation. And another wonderful display of that glory is that God made a world with order. Order and structure. He separated the light from the darkness. He uh, separated the waters from the seas. He, he pulled it back and set boundaries. This is a point that Genesis is uh, intentional to point out to us. He built a world with structure built into it. The planets stay in their orbit by order that God built into the cosmos. Stars and galaxies, math, laws of physics, etc., etc., and as part of the order that God created, God created authority. Authority to bring order to human relationships and blessing to the earth. 
The first level of authority that exists in this world is an individual human's dominion over this earth. You recall that from Genesis 1. We were created to be stewards. We were created to be sub-rulers beneath God over this world. Next, God created order in the marriage relationship. God created the wife to be her husband's helper, and he created the husband to be the head of the wife. Next, God created authority with, between uh, parents and their children, fathers and mothers having authority over their children. Children are instructed by God, and you can see it just in the natural law as we observe this world that children are to honor and obey their parents. And then, as the world developed and grew and progressed, there came the need for something that God had already foreseen would be needed in the course of history. Groups of people, tribes, cities, and later nations would need to be led. Groups of people would agree upon certain individuals to be granted authority by the tribe, by the city, from the people. The authority is ultimately from God. That's a major point in the text, but we also have to understand how it is that God has brought about this arrangement. The ultimate authority comes from God. We're going to really talk about that next week, the plan. But the way that God brought, this, brought about this authority on the earth was through this outworking on the earth in human relationships. The most basic form of authority in a, in a tribe, in a city, perhaps might be simply judges to, matter, uh, to, de to decide matters of dispute. And over the course of time, as this, as this world developed further, and of course all of this is oversimplification, later nations would be formed, places would find they needed more than judges, and governments were established. All of authority ultimately comes from God. But the way that God often works in this earth is he works through earthly means. He works through uh, humans discovering things, but God is the one who directed them there. So, so for instance, um, consider the question, who invented music? Okay. Well, well, the book of Genesis tells us of some of that first music uh, happening in creation. But did a man invent music and God in heaven was like, whoa, I never thought about that one before. No, that's not how it worked. Listen, uh, music existed before the world was made. The angels were singing while God was creating. G God created music to be a part of this earth, and then he directed mankind to discover it. Well, in a similar kind of way, the scripture shows us that this is how God has led mankind into the arrangement of government and authority. It's often thought that the very first word in Scripture regarding any kind of uh, government authority comes in Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, when Noah and his family stepped off of the ark, and they were walking into a, a new creation of sorts, and God made the covenant in that day. God made certain promises, and there are various things that he said, and here was one of them. Do you, do you remember this part, and have you ever thought it odd why now is this whenever God said this? Major light bulb moment for me in my study here. Well, here's some of the why. God said, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood 
shall be shed. This was the first time in direct revelation that God gave mankind the task of upholding justice which would require groups of people convening together in order to do to order in order to carry out authority if this was if this justice was going to be upheld and executed humans would need to come together and make decisions god granted authority to man to carry out justice this is the first time that God, at least in direct revelation, gave humans the responsibility together to bear the sword. And so in scripture, here is the first, the first instance of the seed form of what would come later. And out of this progression of authority, eventually, governments were established. And Romans 13 tells us, all authority is from God, God is sovereign over who uh, comes into authority. I mean, God is sovereign over everything. There's not a, a leaf that quivers apart from the ordination and orchestration of God. Uh, Jesus said, not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from the will of the Father. But Romans 13 and other places are specifically showing that those who come to the throne come to the throne by the work of God. God is sovereign over who fills these positions of authority. Now, there's a lot more to talk about with that, because that doesn't necessarily mean that they all do everything God likes, okay? We'll talk more about that, but we do need to understand the basic sovereignty of God. If there is a person in authority, it did not come apart from the orchestration of God from heaven. And what the text tells us is that we are to give submission to those lawful authorities. Now, let's come to, to the second part here. Let's talk about submission, submission to these authorities. I don't have to tell you that it is uh, oftentimes a sinful man's temptation to reject authority. You find that a lot of times with uh, some particular good thing that God made, because remember, sin is always a distorting of something good that God made. So if God created, designed authority to be something that is good, it can be distorted. And a lot of times it can be distorted in just more than one way. Sometimes it can be distorted a thousand ways. Sometimes it can be distorted going one or two directions there. We know that one of the ways that is a common temptation that we can be tempted uh, in distorting God's plan for authority is to hate authority. It is to rebel. It is to reject authority. We talked about this in Romans 7, if you remember. We asked the question, you know, what is the kind of the basic attitude of the flesh? the sin nature. And we saw what it is, is it is rebellion. You know, we, we ask the question, what is, what is the definition of cool? As our, as our culture thinks of it, what is, what is cool? Well, we think of things like rebel without a cause, I'm my own man, nobody tells me what to do, over and over again, what's the theme of all these children's cartoons and teen movies and on and on, it is, it is rebel. This is one of the directions temptation can come in our hearts. Now, another distortion of God's design for authority can come in authoritarianism. Uh, the, the idea of someone having unlimited authority. We'll talk more about that in some of the coming weeks, but we know that it is oftentimes the case that, that our temptation is to hate and despise authority. But here is a biblical principle. 
Authority has been put in place by God in order to bring order and harmony and blessing. Godly authority is beautiful. It is beautiful. Now, as I say that, I suspect that some minds really have a hard time with that. Because it may be that whenever you hear the word authority, you have certain images that pop into your head. It could be that you have in your head the character of the, the sniveling politician taking bribes under the table. Yeah, that's dirty, that's gross, that's ugly, we agree. You may also have had a, a tyrant of a father and maybe when you think authority, that's all you can think of and you despise that kind of thing. But, but here, here, this applies to all kinds of things. Just because you see a bad example of something that God created, don't despise the good thing, right? Okay, uh, you, you may meet a bad woman, don't hate women. You may meet a bad man, don't hate men. You, you may have seen a, a really terrible marriage where a husband beat his wife. Yes, that's ugly. Don't hate marriage. God created the thing, the original creation, to be beautiful and to be wonderful. God created authority to be a blessing. He created authority to bring order, to bring harmony. Harmony in a family is a beautiful thing. Harmony in a church, harmony in a society, it's a beautiful thing. God created this authority in order to be a blessing to the world. The Christian needs to see the design of God in authority because of the order it brings to the world and make that a part of our worldview. We are to always be working to try to bring this to a godly uh, ideal, but we must see the design of God in it. God designed, or God designed authority to bring order. Leadership and authority are necessary if humans are going to be together and do anything together. So Christian, don't despise the concept of authority and don't despise governing authorities. We are instructed to be in submission to them. And submission means at least two things, submission in our behavior and submission as a spirit within our hearts. And then here's some background to the text. That I, that I think is going to be very helpful to us. Think of some of the context in which Paul wrote Romans 13. Think even before this into Israel's history. God established Israel as a nation. And from uh, at Mount Sinai, God gave them his law. And remember, though, that the law that God gave Israel was not merely a code of ethics. Okay, the Ten Commandments does that. But remember that Exodus 21 to 23, God gave Israel their civil law. This is just genius. I am resisting the temptation to just ramble on for hours about this. This in the wisdom of God, this is genius. He gave them their civil law. This is wonderful. But think about this. God established Israel as a nation. He, yes, he did give them a code of ethics. He gave them the Ten Commandments and much more. But he also gave them civil law. And then they uh, led themselves. He gave them, uh, he reigned over them as king. Later they said a king over themselves. You remember how some of that goes. But as Israel went on for some time, for hundreds of years, they lived in rebellion to God. 
God kept warning them again and again, repent or judgment is coming. Eventually the patience of God wore out and God sent judgment to Israel. And part of the judgment was they would no longer rule over themselves. Foreign kings and kingdoms would have dominion over them. Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And what happened then in history is that the Jews developed a hatred of these kings and kingdoms that reigned over them. They had a, a deep bitterness and disgust for these kingdoms that ruled over them. And many of them even argued using the Bible, okay, parenthesis, it was faulty argument, but they still used the Bible, okay? Faulty argument, not biblical, but they would use the Bible. They argued and said, these rulers are not the lawful authorities over us. We should be ruling ourselves. And about every century or so, there would be an uprising amongst the Jews. This happened numerous times over. The most famous of those is uh, the Maccabean Revolt. You can read about that in uh, two books uh, that we do not believe are part of the biblical canon, First and Second Maccabees, but we do believe them to be true history. They're just not part of Scripture. First and Second Maccabees discusses the Maccabean Revolt. That was the biggest of all of them. But this same kind of rebellion happened numerous times in history. There would be a, a, a spirit of disgust and bitterness, and it would eventually lead to a rebellion. Well, in the early days of the New Testament, that uh, rebel spirit was being stirred once again. Y you remember that one of the groups of individuals that lived at that time uh, were the zealots. They were a political group who were zealous to overthrow the Roman government. And in Acts 18.2, the Bible mentions something that is well recorded in history and that is that this re rebellious spirit, uh, th th this part is not in included, but the this is what brought it about. The rebellious spirit was growing again, and the Roman emperor Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome. Now, I want you to think about this as well, by the way. This is, this is, this is uncanny. This is one of those moments I kind of geek out, and I'm holding myself back here, okay? The, 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 the Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome in A.D. 60. And that was the very city that Paul wrote this letter to, Romans 13, written to that city. And do you know when Paul wrote this letter to the Roman Christians? AD 57. So it's, it's very likely that one of the things that was brewing and one of the reasons for why Romans 13, you know, humanly speaking, is there was a brewing rebellious spirit there. And Paul writes Romans 13. Three years later, uh, the Jews are kicked out of Rome. Claudius just had enough of their rebellious, tentious uh, spirit, and he kicked them out. And you, then you remember what happened just 10 short years after that in A.D. 70. In A.D. 70, Rome sent its infamous Roman army against the city of Jerusalem in one of the most historic and awful massacres of history. What happened in that? If you're going to understand the Bible, it's another one of those historical events you need to study. What happened in it was just, just positively wretched, 
and historic. Uh, there were Jews killing one another. There was famine. There was starvation. And the Roman army burned the temple to the ground. It has never been rebuilt. The city was destroyed. It has never been the same. And what prompted all of that was ultimately the judgment of God. Okay, And he prophesied it extensively. But on the earth, earthly circumstances that God used to bring this about was the Jews' hatred of Roman authority, which they justified from Scripture. So now watch this. So when some of the Jewish people asked Jesus the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Understand, that was a big question. There was at least 2,000 years of history that went into that question, tracing all the way back to Abraham and God's purposes for them. And so we need to pay really big attention to how Jesus answered that question. So Jesus should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? What they were asking in part was, is Rome a legitimate authority over us? And do you remember how Jesus responded? Show me one of the coins whose likeness and inscription is on the coin. And then he said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. There's an awful lot to consider with that statement. As is always the case, if Jesus says a sentence, there's 10 years worth of study in the sentence. There's a lot to cover there. And here is at least one of the principles that comes uh, out of that. Jesus told the Jews, Caesar has legitimate authority. He has been ordained by God and so you must submit to him. Some of the ramifications of what Jesus said will may have some conclusions that our flesh will not like. But another one of the principles that comes out of that, all of that discussion, leads us to the next thing that we'll talk about. So here's the next one to consider, letter C, subpoint. We are to give submission to lawful authorities. So you, you notice how we worded it in this text, the way that I, I said all of this. Uh, that we are to be in subjection, be in submission to lawful authorities, authority that is legitimate. Uh, if you look at how the text words it again, verse 13, excuse me, chapter 13, verse 1, every, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And part of what needs to be made clear in this point is that there is such a thing as an unlawful power. There's such a thing as an unlawful power, an illegitimate power. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but yes, it is in the text. And yes, Christians have found throughout history that this is a matter that must be discussed. If you think, is this really relevant to my everyday life? Oh man, look at history. You will see this comes up over and over and over and over again, this kind of thing. It's in the Bible. It comes up in the history of the scriptures. It's there. And let me tell you, the church is going to once again need to inform the world about righteousness in these things. There is such a thing as unlawful power. Two examples of that in scripture would be one, Queen Athaliah, and then another, 
David's son, Absalom. So let me spend just a little bit of time on those. Um, Athaliah was the mother of a man named Ahaziah, and Ahaziah was one of the kings of Judah. But Ahaziah only lived for one year, and then he died. Well, excuse me, only reigned for one year, and then he died. When he died, Athaliah rose up and convinced the army, convinced the soldiers to do what she said. And she said, go kill the royal family. Go murder all of the heirs. And she took the throne herself. But one of the family members was able to sneak out one of the little boys, one of the heirs of the throne, a little boy named Joash. Some of the priests kept Joash hidden at the temple throughout his childhood. Only a small number of people even knew that uh, Joash was even alive. And when he uh, came of age, Jehoiada the priest recruited uh, commanders of the army and showed them Joash and they devised a plan. What they did is they surrounded Joash with soldiers. They brought him to the temple one day. Okay, the temple, thousands of people there. They brought him to the temple. They placed a crown on his head and they cried out, long live the king. And the people who were there saw that the heir was alive and that Athaliah was an unlawful tyrant who had illegitimately come to the throne and they cried out, long live the king. And, and by the way, a little parenthesis here, but it is connected. There's an important and consistent theme throughout the scriptures that within Israel, from the beginning, this was the ideal. The people made the king the king by giving him their consent. Now we'll talk more about that later. And there are some wrong conclusions that people sometimes come to with this sort of idea. But we do see it repeated in the history of Israel that this was the ideal. But when Athaliah saw what was happening, uh, that Joash was being crowned king, she cried out, treason, treason. And then Jehoiada the priest sent the soldiers and they captured Athaliah and put her to death. She was an unlawful ruler. The people were not under obligation to give submission to her pretended authority. And then this is what happened next. This is also important. The very next thing that happened is that they sent word to Israel and we, they had a coronation kind of ceremony where the king made a covenant with the people. This is, it is hard to fathom how important this is. Remember, it is the job of the people of God to teach the world righteousness. And this is another one of the big gifts that the scriptures, the people of God have given to the world. It is the concept that there is to be a covenant between the king and the people. That the people see they have responsibilities and they take an oath to uphold their responsibilities. But the king also has responsibilities and he makes himself accountable. There is an agreement between the king and the people. The, let me tell you, the world did not come to this idea on their own. The word of God and the people of God informed the world that this is the ideal. This is the most godly way of doing this. This is what brings the greatest order. But coming back, here's why I told all of that account. Athaliah was an unlawful power. And people have no responsibility to submit to an unlawful, illegitimate power. If a man walks into a bank with a gun and says, I'm in charge... 
You are not at that moment obligated to give submission to his pretended authority. He does not have legitimate authority granted from God. One more example would be Absalom. Absalom was one of the sons of David, one of the heirs to the throne, and he hated his father, and he stole the hearts of the people in the land. He convinced Israel to side with him, and he made himself king. He took his daddy's money, and he hired uh, soldiers to work for him, and then he threw his own coronation party uh, where the people he convinced uh, to cry out, long live the king, and he had hired guns, and then he started marching towards Jerusalem. Israel heard of it, and many of the people were split. Some of them sided with David, and some of them sided with Absalom, and eventually it came down to a battle. Absalom sent his soldiers to go hunt down David to kill him. And by, by the way, try to imagine you're an Israelite and you're living in these days. Who do you side with? Now, I know it may seem kind of easy right now because you think, well, well David wins. But at that time, who, who, who do you side with? You got to know that some people would have quoted Romans 13. It didn't exist then, but the principle of it is in the Old Testament. Would have quoted Romans 13 to say, well, we must, we must uh, give allegiance to Absalom. And that would be misunderstanding the principles that are here. But it came down to it. Absalom was put to death. He was an unlawful king. And the people who resisted Absalom honored God. And one more side note that is important to understand how all these things work. Uh, after Absalom was killed in battle, at that moment, David, David wasn't automatically king again. They had to once again make him king by reaffirming the covenant. And they had a moment where they then collectively agreed to make him king. But now, lest we come to some wrong conclusions from all of that, consider again Jesus' words concerning Caesar. How did Caesar come to power? Was it by the consent of all the people? No. Rome conquered. The Caesars did some wicked and ungodly things to come to power. And yet, Jesus told the people to submit to Caesar, that he had a lawful power. And so part of what this means is that apparently there is a principle of precedence that comes into play here. Now, I think I've reached the line of what I can safely and confidently say until I start crossing into the realm of opinion. So I'm going to stop right there and leave you to go think through more of those kinds of things. But we're trying to see what are the principles that Scripture addresses here. We are to submit to lawful authorities. And then here's letter D, the last one we'll consider this morning. We are to submit to governing authorities, but how much submission are we to give? What kind of subjection are we to give to the lawful authorities? What is this supposed to look like? What is the realm of authority of these civil authorities? So in other words, is this passage, is Romans 13 giving governing authorities a blank check of authority? That is the way that sometimes people think of Romans 13. It has been one of the great misunderstandings of it. The idea that God just gives governing authorities a blank check, do whatever you want, and all the people must deal with it. Remember, we must be careful that in any given subject, we don't just take one verse or one place and ignore the rest of what the Bible says. 
So here, here's a principle I recently brought up in a passage. You remember that when Jesus told us the statement, the promise, whatever you ask in my name, that I will give you, could we get ourselves in trouble if we took that verse and forgot about James 4, you ask and do not receive because you ask without faith or ask with wrong motives, so you can spend it on your pleasures, okay? So those two places don't contradict each other, they fit together like a puzzle piece, giving us a fuller picture of the doctrine of prayer. Well, similar things we must see here, like in Romans 13. We must also know that the Bible has a lot more to show than just Romans 13. And when we get to really looking at the phrases and things that are there, God is addressing these. So yes, Romans 13 tells us to submit to the authority of the governing leaders. But remember the principle Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God, that which is God's. Part of what that means is, not everything belongs to Caesar. There is an authority that God has given Caesar, but it is not an unlimited authority. We are to submit to the authority of Caesar, but we are not to submit to the authority that he does not have. If you give to Caesar something that does not belong to Caesar, you take it, from someone else. You rob someone else's freedom, authority, in order to give it to Caesar. So it's similar to this. The Bible also says, so not only does Romans 13 say, submit to your governing leaders, also remember Hebrews and other places tells you to submit to your church's elders. So Pastor Ben and I have some authority. But let me ask you this question. Do I have the right to uh, pass an executive decision in a uh, business meeting and declare, I am telling you, you must work out three days a week. Do I have the right to do that? Do I have that kind of authority? What if then I started to tell you about all the health benefits that would be involved if you worked out three days a week? It'll lower your blood pressure. And think of how healthy your children would be. Don't you care about the children? You see the point. Yes, pastors have some authority, but there's a what realm of authority? There's a sphere of authority is the language that some theologians use. And civil authorities have authority, but they have a realm of authority. They have a sphere of authority. We're going to talk more about the, that, those spheres of authority in, in weeks to come. But, let, you know, consider it like this. Can you submit to the church's elders but not let us cross a line? Yes. And the same thing comes with governing leaders. Governing leaders have authority granted to them by God. But it is a limited authority. It is a realm of authority. No one other than God has limitless authority. Jesus showed us that Caesar is king. But he also showed us Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. So yes, Christian. You and I should submit to the governing authorities where they have lawful authority as established by God. So where does that leave us? So far, we see these things. Government is from God. God establishes specific earthly authorities. We are to submit to them. We are to know the rules and how it works and the biblical view of their role and such, but we are to submit and submission means that we are to do so in our behavior 
and also in a spirit within our hearts. As you can see, we have an awful lot more to discuss in weeks to come. But let, let me end with this here. Jesus is Lord. And the word Lord is the highest word that can exist for possessing authority. Jesus is king, but Jesus is more than king. Jesus is Lord. And there is no matter more critical to your own well-being than that your heart embrace Jesus as Lord. If you do not embrace Jesus as Lord, you're going to embrace someone. You might try to embrace yourself as Lord. You might try to embrace earthly government as Lord. But the reality of the cosmos is that there is a throne in heaven that sits in dominion over all. Dominion over all of the physical universe, over all of the heavenly realm, over all of the cosmos, and the one who sits on that throne, possessing all dominion, is Jesus. This is what it means that he is Lord. In order to be safe and to have a place in his eternal kingdom, the only way you will be granted entrance into that kingdom is if you are right and you have peace with the one who sits on that throne. And what God has said is you will be granted entrance if in your heart you will embrace Jesus. That is to say, place your faith and your trust in Jesus as Lord and as Savior. And then live consistently with the reality that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, once again, we are in wonder at how you have created this cosmos. We see your handiwork. We see your glory. We're left with amazement. Our toes have been stepped on. I know mine have in the study of this passage. I ask, O oh God, that you will continue to show us your truth, show us your will, show us how, how all of this is a part of your design and your purposes. Teach us more, O oh God, and bless us to be useful, Lord, in teaching the world your truths. Bless us to be faithful. I pray for every one of us Christians in the room, O oh God, that we will live in faithfulness to and in obedience to these instructions of your word. But I also pray, O oh God, for those in the room that have not yet turned to Christ. Lord, I pray that they will see that they must be right with you and that they're not apart from trusting in you. So please draw them to yourself, O oh God. Please give us your blessing as we dismiss. We love you, Lord. And we pray these things through Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.